You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 1st, 2020, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. I've been a prepper since 2005. Yep, prepping right? the show every week since 2005. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a rare April 1st recording of our show. It is. And I, yeah. I do want to point out that we do not do April Fool's jokes on the SGU because that would undercut our credibility. Uh, Seriously. So I just don't want anyone to ever yeah. wonder, is that real? Is it not real? Are they kidding? Are they joking? You know what I mean? Including what you just said there. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Don't believe me. <laughs> you can't believe anything I say. Believe me. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are, week four of the pandemic. We're not even halfway through, I think. Oh. You know, they're nope. saying four, four to six After weeks what? more. Yeah. Well, the peak least. is coming, isn't it? And that's just of lockdown. There's still going to be, yeah. they think, sometimes like waves of social distancing. Oh, and yeah, Physical distancing. Stuff. Physical distancing. Thank you, Bob. So, yeah, we've been running the numbers every week. They're, they're, they keep going up. So the total, total worldwide cases, confirmed cases, 934,000. So we're getting close to a million. Deaths are 47,181 at the time of this recording. But you know, these numbers are changing quickly. Still a lot of controversy. We've spoken about this, about what is the death rate, you know, of yeah. the mortality rate of the virus. And there's a huge range, which which we said. We did get an email about it, but I think the emailer sort of missed the point that uh, we were only giving a range based on different methods, um, not saying that the higher number is true. So if you look at and now so that if you look at just the confirmed cases and only the completed confirmed cases. So people who were confirmed to have coronavirus who have either recovered or died, right? Mm. Yeah. That death rate is now at 20%. Jeez. It keeps going up, but I think that's an artifact of where we are in, you know, in the epidemic. And it's the, still very well established that not everybody who is sick or even not or asymptomatic is getting tested because we now we now know something like what is it twenty five percent of people don't have any symptoms whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's high. Estimate. It's it's yeah. high. So there was a study, and the emailer did point out a study from Nature where they looked at the data from the. Uh, the, print, the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Yeah, mm. That's right. That's a, that was a little microcosm, you know. Yeah. Of, yeah. Petri the dish. The floating Petri dish, yep. And there, the, 3%, the death think, rate was, it was 0.5, actually. It was very low. Mm. But there also might be some some uh, stuff like they're, they're, they, the people were well enough to be on a cruise and they were, you know. Yeah, it's it's not the average age necessarily. Is high, yeah, the mm. average age tends to be high, but it carries right. They probably, they might be a more, you know, healthy subset mm. of the population uh, but also the number that that number was low because they they because they tested everybody there were right. a lot of asymptomatic people that they tested yeah. right i think you're seeing similar things in in south korea where they had the capacity to test a lot of like whole neighborhoods and things like that and you're starting to see that that's we're probably going to get good data in the us in certain small neighborhoods um, or small cities where they've decided to do the same thing. Like they have the means to just test the entire population of that city. And so that's going to, I think, give us a lot better. But again, that's cross-sectional data, not longitudinal data. Right. That's right. And Mm -hmm. so also the other question is, well, what really matters? Like we often in medicine, we'll talk about 
the projected outcome based upon where you are at one point in time. Like, so for example, we'll say from the time of diagnosis, what's the probability of being hospitalized, going on a ventilator, dying? Uh, yeah. Of course, if you're asymptomatic and you're not diagnosed, then you're not in that, in those numbers. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, the, the fact that there might be a lot of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic out, people out there who aren't being diagnosed with COVID-19 doesn't really change the core fact of the number of people who are diagnosed and the death rate among those people. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it means something different to the general public than it does to epidemiologists and and medical professionals. I think because everybody's so anxious right now and and afraid because, you know, of course, being in lockdown in your own house is going to contribute to feeling very paranoid about the outside world and about your risk to catch it and what's going to happen if you do. And so in a way, I think having both measurements can be helpful with people. We're so bad at risk. So being able to think about my personal risk is very different than the risk of somebody who is already in the hospital, for example. Mm -hmm. I think the, the other bottom line here is it doesn't really matter at this point in time in terms of what we do and what's likely to happen. So yes, there's this huge range of mortality rate based upon how you looked at the numbers. I don't think that I don't think that changes the models about how many people are going to get diagnosed and how many people are going to die uh, from the COVID nineteen. The fact that there's even more sort of asymptomatic people out there. The, you know, the downside to that is that that is part of the reason why the virus is spreading so yeah. right mm-hmm. so far and wide so fast because. It's, you know, most of the spreading is happening among people who are asymptomatic or they just think they have a mild cold. They don't, you know, even people who are, who later become very sick often say, yeah, they just, they thought they had a very mild illness for a couple of days. They didn't think it was COVID-19 and then it hit, you know, then they really got sick. Well, and that's why so many people right now are in are under shelter at home orders, right? It's yeah. because we have to act as if everybody is sick because we're not able right. to test everybody. Whereas what once we get to a place where everybody can get tested, if we get to that place, like in South Korea, we can go back to work. We can go do things because then we can quarantine the sick only instead of yeah. basically quarantining everybody. Everybody, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very infective. You know, there was a, a report from an epidemiologist who was interviewed on NPR, and he's, he got COVID-19, and he said, listen, I did everything right. I was obsessive about washing my hands and avoiding contact and wearing facial protection. He still got it. You know, of course, he yeah. was seeing patients, but, you know, no. the, the, it's, it's, it got around all of his defenses. So you, the social, the physical distancing is the best way to address this. It just, this is really just to reinforce no matter what we think of these numbers at this point in time, one thing is absolutely clear, and that is physical distancing is still our best weapon against this virus. It is absolutely critical. The, the models, you know, models are only as good as the data that we have, and the data is already outdated, and it's, you know, it's, it's complicated, but conservatively in the U.S., uh, the models are predicting between one and 200,000 deaths before this pandemic yeah. is over. But and that's, that's because we're physical distancing. That's, that's yeah. with doing everything. No, not because it assumes we're physical distancing at a, at a level yeah, that we are you. not doing it. We are not yeah. doing it at the level of the models. But if we had done nothing, on. the models are saying like over 2 million deaths. Right. 2 million. So yeah. that's the range. It's one hundred to 200,000 if we do everything we're supposed to do. 
Which we're not. And it's two million if we do nothing. If we just right. sort of you know, but didn't st- do anything. But Steve, yeah, but you're also missing, I think, um, the other end of that. The other end of that spectrum is if, 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 and, and, and I haven't seen an official number on this, but I suspect that if we had acted uh, in hindsight, or even yeah. if we had acted as we should have, even knowing what we knew at the time, that number we would see ranges now of instead of a hundred to two hundred, I, I think they'd be fifty to a hundred, uh, best case. And uh, and a worst case of way less than two million, but that that's what just, that's my yeah take we lost on time it. yeah we lost yeah, time. time I mean right. but the good news reasons. is that early reports are showing that in places where lockdowns went in early like Seattle because they had some of the first outbreaks or sorry yeah, Washington State um, it's working the curves yeah. are flattening which is yeah, amazing absolutely. Well, yeah yeah it works yeah it yeah works. which is great. So do it. Like we in California, I feel like I'm very lucky in California. I, we have a great governor who gets it and just like push for this really, really early. And we're starting to see really positive results. And I mean, California could very easily be the next New York. But right oh, now, yeah. New York is like, I don't know what it is, five times worse than California. Um, and, you know, there are reasons for that population density, all that good stuff. But we're huge. We're the fifth largest economy in the world, which is insanity. Um, and we've got a lot of people here, but somehow we've managed to um, kind of get ahead of it earlier, which is good. We yeah, were that's able the, to get that's that stuff the good in place news. On, yeah, early. Uh, that's the good news. As painful as all this is, as disruptive as it is, it's working. And mm-hmm. as long as we just settle in for the long haul, that's like the biggest risk, I think, at this point in time, and a lot yeah. of the experts are worried about, is the distance Non-compliance, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's people will get tired of this and we'll, we'll start breaking protocol too early, and then we can get hit with the second wave. But if if we just settle in and just really wrap our head around the fact that this is going to be it for at least six weeks, I think, and yeah. and maybe longer, and just be prepared for that, and and you know just rearrange, you know just live your life, rearrange your life, be okay with this being your life for now, and you know we will get through this, and we will minim, we'll flatten that curve, and we'll minimize you know the the negative outcomes here. We'll avoid overwhelming hospitals. We can do it. Yeah. It's just a matter of just. The, this is a marathon, man. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. We got to all be in that mindset. Pacing. I ourselves. hope the healthcare workers can hold out. Yeah. The one interesting thing about the United States is we have fifty experiments going on. You know, every True. state mm-hmm. yeah. really is its own little thing because the governors are really determining what the protocol is for their state. And states that yeah. are not like Florida, you know, states that are not doing a good job yeah. of of locking people down are starting to see cases surge you know mm-hmm. it's going to be really interesting yeah because of the way that our country is set up you're right like for people who live in other parts of the world who don't know this it's like there are 50 tiny countries in the u.s like yeah states have a lot of rights and so far the federal government hasn't really imposed any sort of mandates they've no, imposed they a lot of That's suggestions right. mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so so it's really up to the, the states whether yeah. or not that they want to mandate something and some states are more have been more intense about it than others some new york got hit though that's the real problem new york got hit hard and they got hit early and they just again the population density is bananas in the city yeah it's very tight so it's spread like wildfire but the interesting thing is you look at a place like hong kong where they are so close to china they um have more population density than new york it's like new york on steroids in hong kong if Mm. you've ever been it's just so many people live there and they really mitigated this thing early by having intense restrictions. And they just did not have the rates that, we, that we're seeing here. Get this. One, one interesting anecdote. So I have a friend who's a doctor on the front lines in New York. Mm-hmm. And they are now 
putting two patients on one ventilator. Yeah, How? I've been reading How, about Steve? that. So, yeah, so basically, yeah, you have like Y-tubing. So the the ventilator is breathing for two people at the same time. So they have to have the same ventilator settings, you know. You have Mm -hmm. to finagle it somehow that you have two patients who have the same ventilator needs because that's how they're dealing with their ventilator shortage, you know. That's the biggest problem right now in the U.S. is is a shortage of PPE and a shortage of medical equipment. I mean, it's just it's and uh, and the beds. people to operate them, the people to operate them because mm, managing right. a ventilator takes a lot of people, a lot of respiratory therapists, not just doctors. And we we actually that may be the critical limiting factor is respiratory therapists. And we're also starting to see that like final year med students and final year nursing students are, are like basically in the trenches now, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think you're yeah. so, across the board, it's like, let's take all the help we can get. Yeah. It's like 9-11. Jesus. Yeah. It's like mobilizing yeah. an army almost. You're yeah. pulling the recruits out and putting them into the battlefield. I signed up as a volunteer. They haven't, they haven't, you know, they if, haven't if, called if, you if we get the surge in Connecticut where like mm-hmm. they're having in New York, then we're going to have to use anyone, even if that's not normally what you do. To back them up, you know what I mean? Yikes. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Steve, what are you most afraid of with this whole thing? Yeah, I think that my big concern is that people will relax their distancing too early. Mm. Because of fatigue and like – Poor like communication of, from the yeah, top, yeah. A lack of unified messaging from the top yeah. that's strong enough, yeah. Because, because it's going to be a year, year and a half best case before we have a vaccine. Until we get a vaccine, we're relying upon – just the immunity of having been affected, which we don't even know, we don't know what that, that is yet. So and we'll, people just we'll don't, see. it's the numbers are really hard to fathom, right? Like, and I think we talked yeah. about this last week, but just to reinforce it, like there's this really great video online of some of the best science communication I've seen from the UK. I think he's like a virologist or a, an epidemiologist. And he's talking about comparing the r naughts of the flu because people keep comparing it to the flu. And he's like, this is why you can't do that. You compare the r naught of the flu to the r naught of coronavirus, just like the number of people that you'll infect. And, and then you do that 10 times over. So I infect X number of people, then they infect X number of people in 10 different levels. When you start with one sick person of the flu, after 10 times over, you end up with 16 sick people from the flu. After 10 times over with COVID-19, you end up with 56,000. Yeah, totally it's different. A massive difference. And people, mm. that's very hard to contemplate because it takes, mul- it's like multiple generations of infection, mm. but they happen so quickly and they can happen while you're asymptomatic. So that's so that's so you're comparing. I'm sorry if I missed it. You so you're, you're comparing coronavirus, COVID nineteen with the flu, right? You just, with the seasonal compare. flu, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's you know, it's worse than COVID. Measles. Mm. The R the R not is Ooh. like really? uh, it's like R sixteen or eight or something like that. For every person yeah. infects eight to twelve, so it's even worse. But it's just not. Well, we have MMR. You have symptoms. So. You have, <laughs> yeah. Right, you have and you have symptoms, and you know that you're sick, and it's not. You know, it's not. It's, yeah. it's better in other ways. Yeah. Yeah, and we've known about it for a long time. We have a vaccine. Yeah, so that's the other thing. There's herd immunity against measles. A lot of people are already vaccinated against it. Imagine. So what about Steve? What about the chances in before the 16 months say pass and we have a decent vaccine? Could they come up with therapies or uh, or some other schemes where like or like using antibodies that that yeah, like taking the the what like the plasma plasma? people who are already infected and got over it. It's all being researched, you know, to Mm -hmm. come up with like a gamma globulin treatment for it. But yeah, these all these things take time. You know, yeah. to, to to develop, uh, and then there we're just talking about treating people who are infected so that they have a less severe illness, yeah. not 
preventing uh, prevention. The spread. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it could eventually it could be like AIDS, where you if you get it, it's not a death set. It's not an automatic. Right. It's not a yeah, death right. sentence. Like, oh, okay, crap. You got you got COVID. You're going to be really sick for a couple of weeks, but then you'll be fine because very few people die from it because we have the treatment. So we will reach that point. The question is when. Hopefully, yeah. You don't. Who knows? I mean, research is research, right? You have to wait and see. Let's go on to the news items. We're going to do just one COVID-19 related news item this week. Evan, you're going to start us off with a public service announcement. Don't drink poison. <laughs> yeah, and some, you know, you would think some things don't need to be said, but some things need to be said. Don't Coffee drink is hot. Is right. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. Jeez, and I'm afraid I'm becoming somewhat of a grim reaper almost reporting on these kinds of stories. Injury and death, not caused just by the virus. But some of the things that people are doing in reaction to the virus, you know, we know that pseudoscience and fake medicine and faith healing, these are harmful things. They are very harmful. They are deadly. It's not hyperbole. It's reality. All right. Here's the latest case in point. In Iran, it's being reported that there's an epidemic inside the pandemic that's occurring. Iran media is reporting that 300 people have been killed and more than a thousand sickened so far by ingesting methanol, which is being touted on social media there as a potential cure for COVID-19. Methanol is highly toxic to humans, as little as 10 milliliters of pure, that's what, two teaspoons of pure methanol? It'll, it, when metabolized, it goes in, it turns into formic acid when it can cause permanent blindness by destruction of the optic nerve. Mm. And even worse, long-term outcomes can be kidney failure, and certainly death can arise as a result. And apparently this has been happening. Or think of it this way. Methanol poisoning most commonly occurs following the drinking of windshield washer fluid. Oh, Now, it used to occur really commonly during Prohibition. Sure. People yeah, were making their own bootleg alcohol, and they didn't understand the chemistry, and people were going blind. And in an Islamic-run country like Iran, mm -hmm. in which alcohol consumption is very much frowned upon, if not illegal, the bootlegging industry there is something that's prolific. Yeah, There's but people, like in like my medical training in modern times in the U.S., mm -hmm. when we see methanol poisoning, it's almost always an alcoholic who drank it out of desperation. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, exactly. Because that's what they had access to, and they, 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 you know, rubbing alcohol or whatever. They didn't realize that it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Associated Press uh, spoke directly to the Health Ministry of Iran. They report that their numbers are 480 dead and almost 3,000 case cases of people sickened by this. Mm. And it's it's not, it's hard to know for sure what the numbers really are there. It's and it's going to get worse, probably. But let's just say Iran does not have the best track record of transparency or medical science in general. So the numbers there are a little sketchy, but these are bad numbers. And these poisonings come as fake remedies spread across the social media. And people are deeply suspicious of their government. And therefore, they are you know, not taking advice from their government. They'd rather be listening to whomever, such as, well, one Iranian social media account falsely suggested that a British school teacher cured themselves of the coronavirus by using whiskey and honey based on a tabloid story from early February. And this is just one of the mixed messages that are out there using alcohol-based sanitizers as well and consuming those. So these ideas about drinking high-proof alcohol, that would they, the idea would be it kills the virus, but that's wrong. And people are consuming these things and they're dying as a result. Now, here is a quote from Dr. Hosan Hassanian, 
who's an advisor to Iran's health ministry, and he spoke to AP. And he said, other countries have only one problem, which is the coronavirus pandemic, but we are fighting on two fronts here. We have to both cure the people with alcohol poisoning and fight the coronavirus as well. So they're using their resources to treat people who are thousands of people who have been consuming uh, these deadly forms of alcohol. It's a, it's a huge problem there. Um, so as far as uh, COVID-19 goes, as of last week, they reported 29,000 confirmed cases and 2,200 deaths from the virus. But as of today, according to worldometers.info, coronavirus cases are at 48,000 and deaths are just over 3,000. Also, again, there's questioning because these numbers might be severely underreported based on Iran's history with uh, making reports of some of such things. But to generalize from this, don't believe you know about any cures or treatments or anything you might read about online or that are spreading through social media. There are chances that you're going to help yourself by taking something like this are vanishingly small, and the chances that you're going to hurt yourself are substantial. So this is just yeah. you know one one instance of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's an actual treatment that works, it'll be recommended by the CDC, by doctors. You know what I mean? It's not going to be something that you're going to get in a back alley somewhere. It's interesting that now we're living in an era where you can, like, find, obviously, any information you want from anyone in the world with, like, a few keystrokes. Um, One of the things that I think was so compelling about that American Experience documentary about the 1918 flu pandemic was all of the elderly people that were interviewed in the doc that were children at the time of the pandemic saying that like folk remedies were everything at the time. Like everybody was like, there was no medicine. So we just made our own. Like that was the age of patent medicine. Yeah. yeah, And parents were just putting castor oil and anything they could find into a pan. And it just, it, we didn't even care if it did anything. It tasted like it was going to do something. And that helped people feel like psychologically, like they were being proactive. And I think that's a big part of this is that Mm -hmm. there's no treatment, there's no vaccine, and people are like, then what do I do? I need to be empowered to do something. Yeah. And that's a driving Grasping at straws. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, and it's so dangerous. Okay. Let's move on to some non-COVID-19 news. So Yay. actually, in the last week or so, I've written in for a neurological blog about three different news items that relate in some way to the brain-machine interface, which is one of the things I'm very, very interested in. This is the the whole notion that we can you know, read signals from the brain or communicate, you know, to a computer or communicate from a computer back to the brain, you know, some kind of two-way communication there. And that this opens up a lot of possibilities, you know, like being able to control robotic prosthetic limbs, for example. So the I'm going to focus on one and just briefly mention the other two that I wrote about because they are relevant. Uh, the, the, the one I wrote about most recently is about decoding speech from brain waves. So you're recording brain waves, you know, within, uh, with, the electrical signal, the electrical waves, uh, and you're able to turn that into the words that the person is reading, the subject is reading. So that sounds a lot more impressive than it actually is. This report does give a good indication of where we are with this technology, the technology of basically interpreting brain signals, you know, using a computer algorithm to try to infer what process is going on there. In this study, they used brain surface EEG or electrocorticography. Uh, so the electrodes aren't placed on the scalp. You actually have to open up the skull and place the electrodes directly on the surface of the brain. So right there, 
you know, it's a, this is a highly invasive procedure. And so, you know, not the kind of thing you could do casually, right? And they used a lot of electrodes. They used 256 channels, which is a lot. Wow. A, a channel is when you compare two electrodes and you do some kind of pattern. So it's not every electrode to every other electrode. It's usually just to your neighbors, you know, and that way you can, that's how you tell the electrical activity at any location is by comparing the difference between two electrodes. Um, anyway, so 256 channels, that's a lot. And then, uh, so that's that was one limitation. You need a lot of electrodes on the surface of the brain. So you need a lot of discriminating power there. Also, the computer was not reading an open-ended sentence, right? In other words, the subjects weren't just saying whatever they wanted to. They were trained on a limited number of sentences. Ultimately, 30 to 50 sentences were used with a 250-word vocabulary. So there was a, you know, a, a predetermined finite number of targets that the computer had to distinguish, right? Well, I mean, it's still a lot, right? It's still, yeah, but I mean, it's, so it's not, the ultimate goal would be able to like, be able to read somebody's mind, basically to be able to, like if you have somebody who's locked in who can't speak, but they can think, to know what they're thinking uh, in sort of real-time natural language. Yeah, it's kind of kind of the opposite of now where the people who can't think but still speak. <laughs> and that's true. But we're nowhere near that. So, th so, this, so they were using just predetermined target sentences. So the computer algorithm only had to know like which one of these sentences were they saying. Here's one interesting bit. So uh, systems that are being developed to do this can focus at different levels, right? You could You could try to decode by examining the phonemes. Right, you could try to you know essentially build the discrete sounds of the language. yeah what the person's thinking by trying to pull out the phonemes and build them into words, etc. Right, or you yeah. could focus on complete sentences, or you could focus on words, you know, which is somewhere in the middle. That's what this study did. They they tried to um, decode individual words, not break it down to the phoneme level. Uh, that's probably they made a good case for that's probably the best way to go because. If you try to do like entire sentences, there are just too many possible combinations. And phonemes are too tricky. They phone, the problem with phonemes is that they're very variable and they, they're also like it, there's a specific phoneme may sound different depending on what came before it. Right, right. Hmm, interesting. Uh, they, they think that the Goldilocks zone, you know, is looking, trying to, to identify individual words. So their, their, their neural network that they use to do this was that was bit was based on trying to dis discern individual words, but having said that, oftentimes when the uh, when the algorithm made mistakes, it would often um, include entire phrases from one of the other target sentences. You know what I mean? So clearly, it was also like targeting chunks of sentences from the target sentences. Okay, so in the best case scenario, right? They were able to decode uh, which of the phrases the subjects were reading with a 3% error rate, which is really good. But that's with all 256 channels with the finite number of sentences. Also, the subjects were saying the sentences out loud. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that introduces other things, you know. Mm, motor stuff. That would not be present in somebody who couldn't physically speak, right? Yeah. 
And if, if totally you have part of your brain, if you have to say things out loud for this to work, that kind of is a moot point then, right? It kind of it defeats the purpose. But what the researchers did was they did some interesting little sub experiments to try to answer around these questions. Like, for example, they analyzed the data, taking out every other channel. And uh, but actually that resulted in only 64 channels. Um, or I think they were trying to simulate what would happen if we took out every other electrode and and to do that, you ended up with only 64 channels instead of 256. When they did that, the error rate jumped by fourfold. You know, so there was a four times higher error rate when you reduce. So the number of channels do matter. Basically, they proved that, yes, you actually do need all 256 channels. You can't get away with fewer electrodes, fewer channels. They also looked at different parts of the brain and tried to decide which Activity in which parts of the brain predicted at the accuracy of the decoding. So in other words, what was, you know, was it just the motor area, for example? And there were two areas that stood out. One was the superior temporal gyrus, uh, which is the part of the brain that decodes language. So that's, that's the good answer, right? We, that's what we want to see. We want to see that it's the primary language cortex that is the information from that part of the brain. Not the motor cortex, right? We don't want yeah. the motor cortex to be the one. But it also, very important, was the part of the brain that hears speech. So it could, part of the success could have been the subjects hearing themselves saying the sentence. That's not good because, that again, that defeats the purpose if you have to hear what, what you're saying. You know what I mean? So the next step, obviously, would be to get people to just think of sentences and, and not say them out loud and to see if that could be decoded. But I suspect that's going to be a lot harder. So this was basically a proof of concept. It was just the idea that the activity of the brain is different uh, when people are saying different things, and it's different in a detectable way that a neural network can learn what people are saying based upon the brain's electrical activity. But from a practical point of view, it's far away from anything really useful, right? Mm. Because, you know, of all the things that I said, you need a lot of channels that got to be on the brain surface. That people were speaking out loud. There was a very small number of target words and target sentences, et cetera. But when you think about it, let's say you're locked in, right? Some you're paralyzed from the neck down, some horrible situation where you basically are, you're awake, you could think, but you can't speak, you can't communicate. Or like you know Stephen Hawking, you know toward the end where he, his brain was was intact uh, cognitively, but he just had no motor function. Having even a few hundred word vocabulary could get you pretty far, you know, in terms of communicating to the outside world. I mean, you you would need, what do they say? 500 words, you could live a life. And Yeah, 500 is a pretty functional vocabulary. The average person, English speaker, this does vary by language. The average English speaker has between 20 and 30,000 word vocabulary. 500 is a, is often proposed as a threshold for being able to get through your day, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but you guys remember the Upgoer 5 website? Um, mm -mm. You can go to this site called Upgoer 5, which is a, it, it's basically, it, it has in its, in its algorithm the 1,000 most used words in the English language. And you can write a sentence and it'll tell you which words are not allowed. This was invented by, I think it was the author of XKCD, right? The Monroe. Oh, oh cool. 
cartoonist. Yeah. So the Upgoer 5 is like what you would call the Apollo capsule, right? Ro- rocket. The Saturn V, right? Because there's no Saturn. And and the site uses the the most common 1,000 words because the word 1,000 is not among the most the 1,000 most used words. So anyway, right. just it tells you how challenging it is to communicate with just the 1,000 most commonly used words in the English language. So 500 would be a lot more challenging. But even still, would, it, that's a, a massive improvement over nothing, sure. right? But we're years away, I think, from this being practical for like that kind of use. Now, the other things that I spoke about, though, are interesting. So one was more at the technology of the electrode end, not the computer software to decode the signals. Um, so this was a, a study looking at microwires. Bob, you're going to love this. Microwires <laughs> for the brain-machine interface. These these had nanoscale wires. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, oh one-fifteenth the, thick, the <laughs> thickness of human hair. Whoa. That would yeah. be embedded deep into brain tissue. They were small enough that they didn't cause any damage. Uh, and they they could function as discrete electrodes. Wow. So the idea is that you can have, you know, hundreds of these microelectrode wires in in contact with brain tissue and that they could, you know, be the thing that you're reading from so that would be even more discriminating power than Well, yeah, I mean, this just scale study. that up, Steve. I mean, 100, you say yeah. hundreds, that could that could translate to thousands, tens of thousands, even ultimately millions that could just kind of find their way through the brain. I mean, and imagine yeah. that, re- I mean, that's some resolution right there. That's some granularity. Yeah. I mean, obviously this technology is a long way to go as well. Um, but uh, they, again, they're at the sort of the proof of concept stage that these wires can work electrically, you know? So it'll be interesting to see where this all ends up in 10 to 100 years. 100 years? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But here's the right, Very, very quickly, the other thing I wrote about was, so you guys know about the body ownership illusion, right? The idea that yeah, you know, yeah. the, the specific circuits in the brain that make you feel like you're in your body, you own your body, you control your body. If those Thank goodness are disrupted, for those. Yeah, yes. if they're disrupted, you have out-of-body experiences or alien hand syndrome or whatever. You have weird experiences. Or what's the one, Capgras, or is that the opposite? Is that where the Capgras is when you think... That other Somebody people else's. Oh, is yeah, an yeah, imposter. Yeah. That's an that's the imposter. Yeah, that's different. Uh, yeah, that's different. But like a phantom Sorry. limb, you know, there's this disconnect between your physicality and your mental model of yourself, right? Either way, you can either be could have things missing, or you can have you know extra limbs or phantom limbs, mm-hmm. uh, etc. But also, you can feel as if you occupy a physical like mannequin or a a virtual a digital avatar. Uh, by tricking the senses, right? So the, and the way yeah. the way the brain works is that basically, if if your physical movement and sensations match your visual input and your proprioception, your somatosensory input, then your brain thinks, okay, that's my arm, right? If I wow. see the arm being touched and I feel it being touched, okay, that must be my arm. Um, so that's all it takes uh, sometimes to trick the brain. Silly brain. What? <laughs> This study, just one little incremental you know, follow-up to that, they said, okay, well, when you feel like you're in your entire body, is that just because you feel like you own all the pieces of your body, or is there something more to that? Like a gestalt. Yeah, and they yeah. found that, there, that it was more. It's more than the sum of the parts, that there is some mm-hmm. extra thing going on in the brain that makes you put it all together. And it, this is how they studied it. It was very interesting. They had people occupying virtual hands and feet, right? And 
again, if they felt and saw the hand at the same time, they would feel like they owned that hand or that foot. And then they, if they had uh, two feet and two hands in the proper anatomical relationship to each other, they would have a whole body ownership illusion based upon cool. that. But if they were not in – like if the foot was where the hand should be, et cetera, <laughs> they would not have a whole body ownership illusion. I see. They would so just have an individual part. They would have, yeah, it's like I own that foot and that hand, but I'm not feeling the whole body, right? <laughs> wow. Weird. That so is there's nuts. something, yeah, there's something else going on that puts it all together. And, it, and it, you know, obviously their physical relationship to each other is part of that. I wonder if it's just that a certain amount of your kind of the quote unquote homunculus, like the strip of your yeah. somatosensory cortex or what? I wonder if a certain amount of it's activated at the same time, you just get like a, a global effect. Yeah, but like for every, what we find is for everything, there's a circuit for that, right? There's just a, yeah, there's a circuit in the brain that specifically is producing that phenomenon. Um, oh, so anyway, so all cool. of these things, the microelectrodes, the decoding the brain, the ownership illusion is all adding up to eventually we will be able to occupy robots or occupy virtual avatars or use prosthetic devices. And they could even be supernumerary. They don't have to replace yep. a limb. You oh. can have an extra mm-hmm. arm and your brain will deal with it just fine. Your homunculus yeah. just adapts and, yeah. and it's grows really that extra arm or whatever. So James, James Cameron was right. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. Hmm. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Plus. All right, everyone. You know that we are all at home. Some of us are working. Some of us <laughs> yeah, not right. so much. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think now I is... A great time to get going on The Great Courses Plus. There are thousands of lectures from the best professors, the best experts. It's an awesome way to stay informed and engaged. And hey, we got time to listen to all, well, maybe not all, there's too many, but but a lot of those lessons. Kara's right. You can even learn about infectious diseases from The Great Courses Plus. Talk about having everything in their catalog. Yeah. Uh, You could check out things about money and banking, what everyone should know to help contextualize the current stock market. You could also learn about fighting misinformation, digital media literacy, or you can use the time to pick up a new hobby. You know, the weather's breaking here in New England and gardening is a great thing. Uh, Actually learning how to cook finally. Come on, learn how to cook. Your girlfriend wants a freaking steak done right. And even learning a new (laughs) language, Evan. What would you like to speak, Evan? Oh, Esperanto. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I want to learn Navi so that I could speak to no one. (laughs) Yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I just love the fact that I could browse their catalog, find something I didn't even know I was interested in to watch or to listen to. I really expand, you know, the, the types of things that you learn about and that you're interested in. It's really a great resource. And right now, the Great Courses Plus is giving SGU listeners a free trial, only $10 a month when you sign up for the quarterly plan. So sign up today using our special URL. You can find all the details at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. Remember, it's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Jay, this is also cool. This is another little little thing, but it's interesting to put it into context. There's a study which which purports to show one way that, that future astronauts uh, may use their own urine to build stuff on the moon. I hope my leg don't break peeing on the moon. <laughs> Yeah, so check this out. Everything 
right now is up for grabs when you're in a remote place like the moon or Mars, right? You shouldn't throw away anything because anything could potentially have a, have value and they want to reuse and recycle. You know what's that thing? Reuse, reduce, recycle. Yeah. You got to do that when you're on the moon or at Mars because, you know, it costs an amazing amount of money. So, you know, what do we say, Steve? It's like $10,000, 10000 US dollars per pound to put something just into orbit, let alone ferry it all the way to the moon and bring it down to the moon's surface. And even though companies like, uh, you know, we have SpaceX and NASA are trying to reduce these costs and lots of progress has, has been made over the last 10 years or so. It's still going to be crazy expensive to bring all the stuff that we need to bring to the moon, especially heavy stuff, right? So now let's zoom over to the moon. So the moon's soil is, uh, you could call it lunar regolith. Uh, basically, all soil is called regolith, right? Yeah. Well, the moon, yes. Well, wait. Are you sure Not all regolith. That? All soil is regolith, but not all regolith is soil. Okay. Regolith is just loose material on top of the surface of a world, but that could be soil, it could be sand, rocks. It, it could be the Small moon's rocks. marbles. Dust, you know? yeah. yeah. Are you sh- yeah. are you sure? Because I have I have I have only really heard about regolith in the context of the moon. Nope, I'm sure, Bob. Okay, it's yeah. non-specific. I, does not refer I to just, the moon. Yeah, I just confirmed it here. All right. So okay. whatever you want to call it, Bob. And just watch your attitude. The uh, <laughs> the soil that we have on the Earth is very different than the regolith that's on the moon. And there's a few reasons why. Mostly because there's no biological activity happening, right? There's no water there that's moving moving it around and making things happen. But most importantly, there's no biological uh, material that's changing the soil. So the regolith on the moon is really just pulverized stone due to all the meteor strikes and these little tiny dust particles of of uh of sand or whatever you want to call it are sharp and they're very they're you know very irritating like Anakin Skywalker Steve I loved what you wrote in your blog that what yeah. you say? like <laughs> like basically Anakin Skywalker hate would hate the moon cuz it's cuz uh, it's, <laughs> it's coarse it gets everywhere because the sand there is even more itchy than the sand anywhere else <laughs> this is a cool fact that the softer material on the moon could be up to 15 meters deep Mm -hmm. Wow! until you get to a a harder rock. So when people start creating bases on the moon, that dust is going to wreak havoc on all of the gear that they bring. Everything that comes into contact with it, spacesuits, electronics, you know, just any, any piece of equipment that does something that has moving parts can be subject to the regolith and to the, this dusty material right. that will, that, that will do damage. That's why you and, live in the lava tubes under the regolith. Yeah. So sure, Bob, mm-hmm. we could make a base under, underground that has its own set of problems and, and, uh, Engineering. It's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. Well, but Bob, it's going to be, it's, it's complicated, right? It's not just, you know, let's, ha- let's yeah. set up a base here. Of it's course, but be... it's much less complicated than, than building bases on the regolith. Well, Bob, let's leave that to the experts, okay? Yeah. Or the, or the episode where I talked about it a few years ago. Whatever. Who listened <laughs> to you three years ago? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I wow. can't help myself. Yes. My this mom, is called, guys. this is pandemic tood that I have right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just for your own edification. It's dangerous for a person to come in contact with moon dust, whatever you want to call it. It could be very irritating to your skin. God forbid you breathe it in. It's bad. Oof. This is bad stuff. So, okay, like Bob said, build a base underground in a lava tube. That would be great. I don't think our first bases are going to be like that. So what they're saying is let's let's make 
an area on the moon, wherever we put the bases, let's make it out of like a concrete, you know, some type of, some type of hard thing that we can, that we can create out of the moon's regolith. Um, so the dust isn't getting everywhere. Great idea. I, I, you know, and I, I've never even thought of it before. It's funny. I never thought, Hey, yeah, why don't they just pour a foundation or pour something there? You know, you can't bring a, a 300 dump trucks or 300 cement trucks to the moon. How do you get all this stuff there? What would we need to bring the moon, bring to the moon in order to turn the lunar soil into something like concrete? So there's lots of stuff in the, in the moon's regolith and I have major elements here <laughs> in lunar rocks and soil. 99% of the mass consists of the following seven chemical elements, right? We have oxygen, silicon, aluminum, calcium, iron, magnesium, titanium. Minor elements, nearly all of the remaining 1% consist of these four chemical elements, manganese, sodium, potassium, and phosphorus. This sounds like a multivitamin, people. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, those are all good manganese. things. So surprisingly, the moon has a lot of great raw material. It's Look at all that stuff that's up there. I mean, aluminum all by itself would be incredibly useful for manufacturing. Titanium, yeah. So in order to make cement, we need a binding agent, or for a fancier word, a plasticizer. So this is where urine could possibly help. So there, u- wow. urea is found in urine. And the research team who's looking into this used a simulated moon regolith, mixed it with urea, and then used a 3D printer to make cylinders out of the mud. And there you have it. The result was that the material was able to support heavy weight and remained largely stable. So do you have to like purify the urine? Like extract the urea somehow? Yes. They needed okay. to. Yes. But then other, uh, I guess uh, other people were saying that Urine has water in it, and you also need water to make cement so that you know urine as a whole would have even more stuff in it that's usable, or maybe they could use it as is. You know, of course, chemistry is very important when you're making anything like concrete. I mean, there, there is a recipe or many recipes for concrete that have different properties. I would imagine that all urine is not created equal for what for what's in it what's not in it blah 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 right so they would need things to be specific and you know it was very important to point out that this is a proof of concept study where scientists are exploring all sorts of different things that we would need in order to pull off a moon mission this is just one of the thousands of ideas that they have to follow through and really think about we don't know if this is going to get anywhere or not but i mean you know let's face it they're going to want to do something with the human waste. And if, you know, one of the things that they could do with it could, you know, even on a minor scale, help support their need to, uh, to make some type of moon concrete. What did you call it, Steve? Mooncrete? Mooncrete, yeah. Regocrete. Uh, or lunarcrete. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's going to be brand names. <laughs> I think it's a really cool idea that they want to make slabs for the astronauts to operate on and it would keep, th- it would keep costs down overall. Like if you think of long term, if they were able to take the moon rock, or, or the moon dust, use it as a as a the ninety nine percenter of what they need. You know, add, add yeah. stuff to it. You know, maybe you know maybe they uh, pull oxygen out of the rocks. Like you know, we know that the, the moon rocks contain oxygen. They need oxygen out of the rocks. People can breathe that. Maybe there's you know there's other byproducts as the processing goes. But the thing that I thought about Steve was that they mm. need yeah. they need a furnace. You know, they need a uh, a reactor in order. Yeah, oh, yeah, you need energy absolutely. Yeah, to do and when I say reactor, they need something that can melt down the regolith to separate out the different elements. Yeah, or well, it depends on what you want to do Solar. with it. I mean, I think part of this so like when I was reading like what could you do with the lunar regolith? One thing that's really interesting is you could sinter it. You guys remember what sintering is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's when you when you like melt something just enough to make it gooey so it sticks together. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, like you could you could sinter field stones 
using wood to make an incredibly hard stone wall, like a very impervious yeah, so stone you, wall. Right, right. Like in cultures before they could completely melt and work with platinum because platinum is a very high melting temperature. They could sinter it at a lower temperature. I feel like this is coming back to me like we were talking about swords or some bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Metallurgy. Not bullshit, Karen. Very serious. But anyway, you could, you, could, you could sinter the regolith into blocks and then build shit out of it. There you go. Building blocks right there. Yeah. You might not even need to make concrete. But if you but concrete could be better if if you had the right formula and it was easy to make it. I don't you know I I doubt very much future moon colonies will be using people's urine to do this. Again, this is just sort of an idea, proof of concept thing. I'm more interested just in you know that the fact that they're going to I think they're definitely going to be using the regolith, the lunar regolith as a building material. It's kind of a no brainer. But also whatever ultimate environment they end up in has to be free of of lunar dust because that. Regolith is nasty stuff, lava as you were tubes. saying. Yeah, so um, yeah, lava, t- lava tubes would be great. I, uh, they, that, that's the, but even if you're in a lava tube, you still need to build stuff. Guys, you know? yeah, but it's a no-brainer. I mean, living, you're on the surface of the moon. Oh, great. We got rid of the dust. Oh, but what about the radiation? Exposure and the, radiation. And the, the micrometeoroids. I mean, it's a death trap up there. Days, it is yeah. a death trap. And concrete is, uh, it sounds good, but man, it's just, it's not a good place to be. Get underground, please. You're going to need a lot of it. But yeah, underground would be ideal. Absolutely. Bob, I just talked to NASA and they said specifically mm-hmm. for you to calm down about lava tubes. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it, guys. So I, I I love news items like this because what usually happens with this is it isn't this thing. It's there's a lot of things that are that are derivative over and over and over again. Like they do this study, then they find another cool idea. Then they do another study and they find another cool little idea over here. Right. And it iterates and iterates until they're like, you know, they come up with like Something else that wasn't even supposed to help the moon mission, but you know, help somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. It's right. It's- <laughs> yeah, I agree. This isn't the application, but this kind of research is the direction we need to be going yep. in. All right. Thanks, Jay. It. All right, Kara, tell us about the evolution of land plants. Ooh, yeah. So this is a really um, interesting article that was published in Quantum Magazine where multiple studies were kind of combined to tell a story. But it's Mostly based on one really large study that puts the age of algae and specifically algae that have precursors to land plants farther back in our geological time scale. So we know that the Earth is how old? Four and a half billion. Four and a half billion. Yep. And we know that, or what we think, that the earliest green plants on dry land, so plants, photosynthetic plants on dry land, were about 500 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And up until recently, we thought that kind of the oldest fossils that we could find of algae that we thought were precursors to plants were 800 million years old. But a recent paper actually published in Nature um, identifies a one billion year old multicellular chlorophyte. So, a little tiny bit of background: um, algae are complicated. 
I mean, I could almost leave it at that. But algae are, um, I love this word. I should actually do it as a, uh, what's the word? But they are polyphyletic, meaning that their their phylogeny is all over the place, right? So it's not really one true group, and it didn't really evolve in a Mm -hmm. clean way. And also, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different kind of definitions of algae. What we do know is that algae are photosynthetic and they're eukaryotic. So photosynthetic means that they make their own um, energy from the sun um, or they make their own food, quote unquote, from the sun. And eukaryotic means that they are multi, not necessarily multicellular, but they have more complex ability to uh, pass down genetic material, right? So we've got the prokaryotes, we've got the eukaryotes. Prokaryotes are bacteria and archaea. Eukaryotes are basically everything else, plants, fungi, animals. Um, So... We know that algae are, uh, generally speaking, um, some multicellular, um, but but all photosynthetic and eukaryotic. There are a lot of unicellular algae, you know, diatoms, like pond scum, all that kind of stuff is algae also. So it's it's all over the place. And probably one of the more complex types of algae that we think of are seaweeds. So the researchers are actually talking about a very early kind of form of green algae that are very similar in, in many ways to seaweed that it's been really hard to study because plants have lots of um, features that allow them to live on land, right? They're resistant to desiccation. They're resistant to breakage. And that's because they have uh, cell walls with um, and, and vascular systems and things that allow them to survive out of water and that allow them to be kind of robust. But in the water, which is where, of course, um, and I don't think that's kind of new information, but in the water, of course, this is where like we think life came from. The algae that was living in the water was squishy and squishy things don't really fossilize. But this new paper in Nature um, has to do with these really cool algae fossils that were found on these green rocks in a place uh, in a part of China where researchers thought that they might be able to find some interesting evidence. And there's even a picture. It's really cool. It's very like filamentous and also really beautiful, this microfossil. It's smaller than a grain of rice, but it's still visible to the naked eye and definitely under just like regular microscopy. Of course, you can learn more under electron microscopy. But it's filamentous, and um, these researchers believe that this is the precursor organism to the development of land plants. But it's not even as linear as all of that, because they do believe that there are a lot of splits in this early phylogeny, that there's a lot of convergent evolution. So some of the things that were necessary for precursor algae to eventually develop into um, land plants would be uh, the genes that would allow it to grow roots, the genes that would allow it to develop cell walls, um, things of that nature. So it was already photosynthesizing, yes, but it didn't really have the features that would allow it to survive on land. And they find that in some of these earliest algae, these oceanic algae that are fossilized, there have been some interesting genetic studies and they're actually not looking at the fossils, but they're looking at extant species that are thought to be closest to land plants. And they're finding a lot of cool precursor genes within these like pond scum species that show that there is some amount of conserved biology. And there was probably some amount of complexity really early on that like re-evolved over and over again that are precursor genes that would allow things like root structures and cell walls. So they're carrying these like remnants 
um, even in the ocean or in the ponds today that may be sort of evolutionary footprints to the earliest um, algae that eventually became uh, land plants. So the story is um, it's coming into greater focus more and more. The One of the biggest takeaways from this, though, is that these precursor organisms are, are significantly older, like 200 million years older than previously thought. And one of the cool things is that this microfossil that's a billion years old is actually more intact and gives us more scientific information than the 800 million year old fossil that we used to have in the record because that one was pretty withered or sorry, weathered and um, broken down. So it's actually a cleaner, more beautiful fossil specimen and it happens to be significantly older. That's cool. But yeah. that's, that's, you know, I read a lot of paleontology news because it's one of the things mm-hmm. I'm interested in. And that that's a very common theme that we see that, Modern adaptations have deeper roots than we thought, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or, and they're more complicated. It's and not freaking linear. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But of course, you know, and it makes sense. And I say then we thought, then we, then I, w- I would say rather than we knew. But mm-hmm. I know that the experts, they know that that's not the, the oldest thing that we know about. It's not the actual oldest thing. That's why they're looking for these things, right? Uh, they yeah. know that things don't come out of nowhere in evolution. You know, that everything has evolutionary you know, deep evolutionary roots. And so yeah. it's not surprising that that's what we see. You know, it's, you know the, the precursors are there and they were there for a long time. That's always the story. And it's pretty cool to think about how they probably did kind of iterate slowly but surely and eventually get to a place where we've got these like stunning land plants, but previous um, iterations, these organisms might have been floating in the water, they they might have been these mossy type algaes or these filamentous type algaes. And of course, um, it's actually very likely that, um, this is a cool thing, that horizontal gene transfer actually took some interesting soil bacteria genes. So the soil bacteria Mm. might have infected or um, transferred its genes into these early algae. And the soil bacteria themselves probably had some of these traits that allowed them to withstand the stressors of dry land because they were living in the soil already. And Mm -hmm. so some of these early kind of building blocks, um, genetic building blocks that would have allowed these kinds of transitions may not have even really evolved in the way that we think of traditional evolution into these land plants. It may have actually been because of bacteria that were more hardy and able to divide faster. And, um, and yeah, so it's super cool to see that, that it's a complicated meandering zigzaggy path. And the more that we look under rocks, (laughs) the more that we learn about it. Yep. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Jay, it's who's that noisy time. All right, guys, last week I played this noisy. Nuts, huh? Do not like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is. This is yeah. not, not Weird. for the faint of heart. Um, and I got some really excellent guesses. I, I'm going to read a little bit more than I normally do, just because I had some some cool stuff. I'll hurry up. So Zan von Ackerman sent in a guess. Hello. Hope everyone is doing okay with the isolation and washing hands thoroughly. For this week, I'm guessing that this sound of this is the sound of a crane or other heavy moving machine. There is something that sounds like the creaking of the arm and plenty of metallic squeaking as the cables wrap up. And the treads roll across the ground. I used to work in construction, and this sounds a lot like the earth movers we used. 
All right. So that's incorrect. Great guess, though. Garrett Spy guessed this week's sound is a rail car traveling on a curb. When fixed axle trucks on a rail car go around a curve, something has to slip, causing the steel on steel sliding that causes a scratch-sounding screech. Thanks, Garrett, former railroad conductor. Ooh, there was something cool. very kind of um, tongue twister about that. <laughs> I agree. Try reading it. Yeah. <laughs> that is also incorrect. Next guest, Thayer Murphy. Hi, guys. Love your work, and I decided I should try and make a guess of a noisy for the first time, although I am not sure in this week's noisy a machine and or vehicle for laying down tracks on a new section of railroad. Uh, also, I'm, if I'm correct, then wow, I am lucky. I mean, I'm amazing. Otherwise, I'm just <laughs> randomly wrong. <laughs> yeah, that was that was funny, but that's not that's not correct either. This is from a listener named Kyle. Hi, Jay. That certainly sounds like a rusted out, abandoned merry-go-round. Damn, that was a good guess. That was a really good guess, and a lot of people guessed that one. And when mm. we re-listen to it, which we will, um, you'll you'll be able to kind of visualize that. That one is not correct, but that was that was a damn good guess. So I I have two people I listed as the winner for last week. Here's the first one. I puppy. Jay, happy physical distancing. Um, you said no one would guess this week's Who's That Noisy, so I'm prepared to be wrong, but I'll go ahead and guess it's some sort of huge machine. That's correct. Let's say a tunnel boring machine, maybe even Bertha, which was used to dig the new SR99 tunnel. That's the part he didn't get right because uh. I'm giving him this win because this one is impossible to guess. It's too specific, but I thought the noise was too cool not to share with you guys. So yes, this is a huge machine. You got that right. You're ha- you got a half a point there. Dan B. wrote in and said, Last noisy is the souls of people that hoard all the toilet paper when they are dragged to hell. <laughs> he got it. He got it. Dan, my God, man, do I love you for that. And my he said God. he's been playing a lot of Doomed, uh, Doom Eternal. So that's probably what inspired him. <laughs> you think? The souls of the people that hoard all the toilet paper when they're dragged to hell. <laughs> yes, that's so good. If you live in the United States, you know why that's funny. Or the rest of the world. I think it's so there was, a lot of places. Is it happening everywhere yeah. now? Not it's everywhere. a global phenomenon. No, but it's so, a lot of places. Yeah. This noisy was actually this guy named James Dumfrey who sent it and works in a plywood manufacturing plant. And this is a plywood dryer. You ready? What? The log is peeled into veneer and dried before gluing together. The dryer is roughly 30 meters, 90 feet long, and is filled with hundreds of rollers. All are driven by long chains and gears. Only the gears are visible to the video. She sent me a video. To me, it sounds like millions of tortured souls in hell, and that was part of the reason why, my God, Dan B. got... Uh, the correct guess. So, so Dan and I puppy got a, got a win last week. Here is the noisy again. These, this is the thing that dries new plywood. Ready? Who would want to work in that room? Who the yeah. hell would want to work in that room? Forget about it. There are there are places where people have to work and they do like I, I told you I was looking for a specific size nut for our first trip to Australia that fit into my uh, uh, piece of gear that I bought. It was a very weird screw depth and width that I needed. It was a very unique. It was a unique one. So it turns out that the, a place that made it of the three places I could find that made it in the United States, there was one literally in walking distance from my job. This oh, has never cool. 
It'll never happen again. It was right there, the building that's right there where I used to work. Okay, so I go over there and I walk in the back door, which used to be the correct place to walk in. They just didn't fix the labeling on the door. I walk in and there's people who's, who man pit like vats of acid that have screws in them to clean them, right? And they're wearing hazmat suits with like metal poles that they're poking in there that probably are doing something that's important to the uh, to the process. And when I tell you that the air was acidic and it smelled really bad, it smelled really like chemical bad acid, you know, like I was like, oh, I did that. I'm like, whoa, I don't belong in here. And I just walked out, right? It was like... <laughs> Like you just felt your breath get used up immediately. And these poor people are in there with these green suits on. And I was just like, damn, man, like that's a rough job. There's people that have really bad jobs. So God bless all of you for doing those hard jobs that people like me probably couldn't last a day at. And yeah, in the, in the plywood drying facility with the rollers and the chains and all that stuff, damn. Okay. It does the job, but I would not want to be near that. So thank you. Thank you, James. That was a good noisy. I do have a new noisy for this week, Steve, because that's my job. Yes. All right, good. And I'm going to play it for you. This noisy was sent in by a listener named Christopher Beck. going on there i know right what was that what is going on in this video so send in your guesses your answers to who's that noisy that's wtn at the skepticsguide.org and just to remind a few people out there who still think that i'm bob this is jay doing this segment (laughs) it's not bob bob your your handsomeness has permeated the interwebs and made people (laughs) bob got like really awesome compliments at a live stream that we did last week like really awesome compliments and i just have to make fun of bob i have to make fun of you bob bob is so handsome that people think he's me okay The lighting, just had, the lighting was very good that day, Jay. You had good lighting. Not as good as next week's stream, Bob, because yeah, Bob right. and I got, got lighting. We both got amazing lighting for next <laughs> week's stream. We'll tell, you, we'll tell you next week. All right. So, guys, thank you so much. Send me those guesses. And don't forget that you can go to NECSS.org. That's, Nexus, Nexus, that's Nexus.org to buy tickets to this year's streaming nexus we're doing it because of the virus we decided to do the entire conference as a live stream or at least most of the conference as a live stream we are right now inviting people to come as speakers and planning on doing some really cool things we really hope that you can join us go to necss.org right now for all the details but the quick and down and dirty is that this event will be happening on what date steve august 1st there it is from the guy who makes the show he is the man. Mm-hmm. He has confirmed it's August first. That's when it is. We're gonna have uh, we're gonna have an MC, lots of speakers, and lots of funny things going on in between. So we really hope that you join us. All right, thank you, Jay. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Mm -hmm. Would you like to hear the theme? Yes. The theme is 
superlative. Oh, God, I hate superlatives. I mean, it's just yeah. so un- unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you know how close? Do you know how close that word is to super laxatives? <laughs> super laxatives. <laughs> Two letters. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Item number one: the oldest living vertebrate is a Greenland shark, which is at least two hundred and seventy-two years old. Females of the species do not reach breeding age until about one hundred and fifty years old. Item number two, the Australian mulga snake has the most potent venom known. And item number three, the European rabbit has the highest fecundity of any mammal. Steve, am I allowed to look up words I may or may not know? <laughs> I will tell you. I will explain right. them to all. Okay, I've what does feckin. a rabbit? I've a done... rabbit is a small animal. What I've done feckin on the show as a what's the word? People. Yeah. What What does vertebrate mean? <laughs> just kidding all right what does fecundity mean god damn fecundity is like jay, how how no, much it this reproduces is it, jay. it means multiplicative proclivities as spock would say in, in, of, a, of a sexual nature it means it likes to bang how well, many I mean, babies it means it does it, likes it have to poop out babies yeah okay yeah i mean actually the the operational definition of how you calculate fecundity is an interesting topic that we will talk about but the simple version is who has the most babies, right? Um, okay, Evan, why don't you go first? All right, the Greenland shark, 272 years old. Happy birthday. And females of the species do not reach breeding age until 150 years old. Okay, I guess what? They have their coming out party around 120 years by that math. Who knows? <laughs> really, I mean, unless you're a, unless you're Quint uh, or, uh, you know, Hooper or something, then maybe you know these things. But uh, other than that, n- nobody knows. Moving on to the next one, Australian mulga snake, the most potent venom known. Oh, my gosh. Here we go again with venom and what would make it the most potent venom? I mean, just would like, you like me to find to define potent for you? Oh, that. <laughs> well, in this context, yeah, that could help per, per unit volume. Yeah, it's basically, you know, exactly how much of it would be required to kill half of the animals that get exposed to it. Right. So like mm-hmm. per gram for gram, like how much of the of the venom do you need to kill an animal? I see. All right. So the so therefore the least amount to kill you. Yeah. Uh, of all of these, of all snakes, of oh, all venom known. Just venom. Venom in in, venom. in general. That's a lot because like aren't fish have, don't fish have venom? Some fish species have venom as well. Boy, how do they really know this? This is tricky. I don't I don't know about this one. But the last one, the European rabbit. The highest fecundity of any mammal was well, a lot of mammals out there. And to say that the European rabbit, I mean, you would think rabbit with, in general, has a, are, are known for, you know, multiplying quickly um, and having large litters, but it's the highest. I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, it's either the snake or the rabbit. Urgh, I will put my nickel down. It's a guess, and I'm going to say the European rabbit does not have the highest fecundity rate. Urgh. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Urgh. Urgh. Struggled okay. with that one. Kara? Uh, yeah, I think I'm with Evan between oh, wow. the last two. No, oh. I haven't. Heard it, but I, <laughs> I think um, I don't. I I don't know about the oldest living vertebrate, but I don't know. 272 years. I think a lot of big sharks don't have any predators, so unless it's like injured, I don't know, man. 
I like that you added that it doesn't reach breeding age until it's super old because that seems to have a lot to do with lifespan. I don't know, maybe like hydra. Oh, but they're not vertebrates. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like on the second two or the last um, the last two, you're really getting us, right? Because they're both playing on stereotypes. Like, ooh, it's Australian, so it must be the most venomous. And then, ooh, rabbits, so they must have the most babies. These are just like things that most people think. So it's kind of a crapshoot. We do often think of snake venom as like the worst, but I think that there's also other animals that are super venomous. Whereas the rabbit, I don't know, who else has huge litters? Well, you're saying just mammal. Yeah. Probably frogs and stuff have more babies. Oh, yeah. Than rabbits. You know, fish but, have but, millions yeah. of babies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. But in terms of mammals, I mean, maybe there's a reason that we're always saying, like, you know, they effing like rabbits um, or they're multiplying like rabbits. So I think I'm going to maybe just to spread it out, I'll go with not Evan and say it's not the snake. Somebody else pick the um, shark. Okay, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me see here. Okay. Let's start with the rabbit. So (laughs) if I'm remembering correctly, European rabbits are basically like tribbles. They're born pregnant. (laughs) Um, Right? The rabbit, these rabbits. Now, I know about these rabbits because of somebody in Australia telling us that when they see them, they drive over them. I thought that was possums. No, that's possums. And and New Zealand. That's not... Oh, yeah, they, they weren't rabbit. Rabbits. The rabbits. I thought they were driving over the rabbits. But yeah. rab- rabbits. You're, you're thinking of an old Bugs Bunny cartoon, dude. Okay. <laughs> well, rabbits, rabbits are historically known as an invasive species, and they do lots of damage. And they, you know, the mythology about them is that they reproduce like crazy. But I do, I do know a couple of facts about rabbits. One of them mm-hmm. is that they can basically have sex anytime and get pregnant anytime. Maybe not all rabbits, but certain, some types of rabbits at least are, are that are that able to do it. So this kind of this one seems sciencey to me um, about the rabbit. And then going to the mulga snake, I straight up just don't know what the most venomous snake is, and nothing's really ringing a bell here. So I can't say positive or negative about that one. But this one about the shark, the oldest living vertebrate in Greenland. He says it, it can live to be up to 272 years old, and then it doesn't. It does not reach breeding age until 150 years old. I think this one is the fiction, and I'll tell you why. There specifically. you go, Kara. You got your wish. Yay! I'll tell you why. I don't think any creature on this earth can't reproduce for that long. That is a massive biological flaw, and I don't believe that anything is like that. So I think that's why this one's the fake. Okay, Bob. Now it's up to you, and they're all spread out. The fecundity of the rabbit. Yeah, it seems obvious. Maybe probably too obvious. Mm. The mulga snake. I mean, I've seen. We've all seen these top ten lists: most potent, most potent, most venomous, most whatever. Mulga is not ringing any bells at all. Although I think the I think the word potent may be uh, critical in that sentence because um, it's definitely it may be the most potent venom, but it's not the deadliest snake. Uh, because it just doesn't um, inject enough to do much harm to anybody. Um, but yeah, Jay, I felt the same way. 150 years old. I'm not sure how they date. You know, the age how they age sharks. Probably something to do with their their teeth. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think we're we're no we know for certain that they live 272 years. I think 
there may be some theories out there. I don't think we know that for sure. And 150 seems way too old to me as well to uh, to, to reach breeding age. So I'm going to say that one's fiction as well. Oh, oh, Evan, I, know. I know, I know. Hold my hand, Kara. Wait, no. So, uh, distancing, distancing. Can't hold hands. All right. Let's take these in reverse order. The European rabbit has the highest fecundity of any mammal. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. The rest of you buy the old cliche that rabbits breed uh, with great proclivity. Jeez. So, Steve, anything I said, do you know if anything I said is correct? (laughs) <laughs> Look at there. So this one Keep about the sure. rabbits mm. is science. This ah. one is science. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah, it is like you think really it's that simple. The the rabbit is, you know, is yeah. the most fecund mammal. But yeah, it is. It's specifically the European rabbit. And again, so fecundity gets can get measured in a lot of different ways, like how many babies per litter, how many litters per year, how many in a year, how many in their lifetime, you know what I mean? But you know, by by many of those measures, the European rabbit for mammals are like way above the curve. They're way way above the curve. Uh, for other vertebrates, like there are other vertebrates that leave them in the dust. The um, Galapagos tortoise over thirteen hundred, you know, in their lifetime. <gasps> eggs oh, but they, they live like, forever. They yeah, but they also lay so many eggs because it's they're yeah. very second. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> well, they just mm. you know most of their kids get eaten. They don't make it to the shore. Oh right, the right, 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 right. So. Uh, do you know what what uh, another name for the European rabbit is? Yes, the, hair, okay. uh, the European hare. Rabbit. No, Buck, Bucktooth no. Willie. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> the, 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 they they called it. They referred to rabbits by that name in Lord of the Rings. Oh 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 um, oh! It's a uh, thumper thumper. No Damn. no no! It's um, uh, 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 whistle pig. No no. Um. That's <laughs> no way to eat a brace of oh conies coney yeah. Oh, I thought they Coney. said carnies. No. <laughs> Coney. Uh, all right. So, yeah, they have. They can start having kids within months of being born. If you're wow. not born Jeez. pregnant, but they're like, within three months of being born, they're ready to go. They can what get pregnant right after they deliver one litter. They can get pregnant again. So they can have multiple uh, litters in one season. They have, you know, they have big litters, seven, you know, plus litters. But here's the thing. In Europe, their breeding season is spring and summer. But in Australia, where they were introduced, they can breed all year round. Oh, Jay, so you were right about that. That's part they're of the invasive. reason, yeah, why they're, they're, yeah, so they're even more fecund in Australia. That's why they've been designated a pest species because they're, they're, they don't have natural predators. They're breeding mm-hmm. out of control. They're all over the place. So, yeah, there you go. Neat. Let's go to number two. The Australian mulga snake has the most potent venom known. Kara, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else <laughs> thinks this one is science. And this one is the fiction. Good job, Kara. <gasps> wait, wait, almost. I almost went that way. The snake Kara was the fiction? Is on a streak, yeah. Oh, my God. Snake Damn. I put the, it's just says, what? Okay. <laughs> Fine, Jay. Jay, he's lying. What kind it's of April, animal is it's it, April's fool. Oh, that's right. It's April no, 1. Nope. We don't do April Fools on the SGU. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. So, oh, what right, is it, yeah. Steve? Is what, it a different snake? What is it? What? To, what? What was the detail? Yeah, well, well, the potent was the key because there's lots. You you can't go by deadliest or most venomous or whatever. Those are those are right. imprecise. What does yeah. that mean? How much venom do they inject? How likely are they to to bite or to inject? 
Uh, but potent venom is just a very specific measure of the venom itself. Regardless, so how did they do it? Like per tiny amount? They did it oh. with the the uh, how how much of it is necessary to kill half of the mice they injected in, it into. Mm. So it's the it's like an LD fifty test, you know, the lethal dose fifty percent, um, and using a standardized you know animal model in this case mice, which is very typical. That's a typical you know laboratory measure. Uh, so it's not even a snake. So the mulga snake is the is has the most potent venom of any snake. But oh. it's not the most potent venom of uh, in the world. That honorific goes to a snail. What? Uh, <laughs> Wait a what? second! A, made that the fiction. The cone snail. Oh, they're they're horny bastards. Those guys. Specifically, the, the, ge- the geography cone scale. Cone snail. It's cone is snail. It, is it also in Australia? Sure. They're, they're in the oceans. But oh yeah, ocean. There's a lot of. Well, that's venom what I in said. The the venom, yeah, the fish. Yeah. All over they the are place. indigenous that's... to the reefs of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so here's the th- here's the reason that the venom is so uh, potent, because the snails are very slow. Oh yeah. And so when they inject their prey, a fish, quick kill, baby. They have to kill them instantly because if the fish have even a moment to swim away, the snail will never be able to get to them. So they evolved venom that is so, you know, so powerful that it will kill their prey instantly. So, and it contains not just one substance, but they, they contain hundreds of different specific substances. So it's basically this chemical factory. Mm. It's, it's also a target of a lot of research. For example, one of the, the constituents of this venom is a protein that is 10,000 times more potent than morphine as a painkiller. How about Ooh. that? Interesting. 10,000, huh? <laughs> Wait, yeah. so how do they... Can I buy some on the street? <laughs> yeah, we'll kill you. Kill you so dead. for something to be venomous, it has to be injected as opposed to yes. for something to be poisonous. So do they have like little needle yes. butts or something? Yep, okay. they do. They have modified <laughs> teeth that they shoot. <laughs> they shoot what? them. As Snails like, shoot teeth. As, yeah, it's like it's like dark. Jay, how did you not know this? <laughs> yeah, Jay. Totally wait, wait a minute. Nothing shoots teeth for Christ's sake, Steve. <laughs> what about tooth shooters? Nothing shoots a goddamn tooth. <laughs> what? <laughs> Seriously, like I'm just gonna stop recording April. and go drink some some a, a case of beer if that's the truth. April one, Jay. April one. It's a harpoon like tooth propelled. From oh an extendable God. proboscis. Whoa! Wait, so it's shitting teeth at people as a weapon? <laughs> no, not shitting. No, proboscis no, it's, it's, is it's nose. nose. Yeah. It's it's shooting its nose teeth on a tether. Yeah. <laughs> it's shooting out <laughs> nose teeth like harpoons that delivers the venom. And they, and they grow back. They, they, just can, they can grow back the teeth so they have an unlimited <laughs> supply of their nose teeth. Jay, where does this where does this what is rate happening? on the scale of like the jiggly brain thing in your oh, God. you know is how, how disturbing is this? I mean, having a snail shoot its snot laced tooth out its nose <laughs> and then it hits me and can actually kill me. Yeah, is, there are some human deaths associated with like it. what? Wow. Very, wait, it's oh my God, rare. what happened to him? What killed him? It was a I mean, snail. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, and it, it, these, they can go through like diving suits. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh my gosh! (laughs) The ocean is a giant 
Trap. It doesn't happen often because they don't hunt people, you know. But yeah, there you go. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> people hunting snails. <laughs> Gotta respect those right. snails now. Let's go back to number one. The oldest living vertebrate is a Greenland shark, which is at least 272 years old. Females of the species do not reach breeding age until about 150 years of age. That is science. We actually talked about this on the show a few years ago when this news item first came huh. out. Uh, and the key... One key statement there is it's at least 272 years old. What the scientists did was they used carbon dating on sharks of this species that were accidentally caught in fishing nets. They had a number of them. And so they sampled them. And there was a range of ages. But there's um, the error bars in the in the measurements were such that they were at least 272, but they were at most 511. Oh, now this, wow. this led to a lot of a lot of report false reporting that the shark was 500 years old or 511 years old. But it's like a, a probability curve. Most likely, it's somewhere in the middle. It's almost certainly not 511, but it's also almost certainly not 272. This was at the time a few years ago uh, that. Um, you know, so these sharks probably live three, four hundred years. You know, that's wow. that's what we're talking about. That's what amazing. the hell? Wow! And they don't start having having babies until they're one hundred and fifty, which makes sure. sense if you live between yeah, why... three hundred, four hundred. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah, ruin your life. Enormous. Yeah. They're enormous. They're big. Enormous yeah. animals, and they probably give in birth to enormous babies. Mm-hmm. And they're probably slow growing. Would be my assumption if they live that long. Yeah, and the old the the oldest ones are the biggest ones, and they can be killed by a snail. <laughs> <laughs> It might take a few. I don't know. <laughs> the previous record holder was the was the bowhead whale. The oldest one known was 211. So this blows that one out of the water. <laughs> well, well done. Yeah. Oh wow. They don't, they don't have <clears throat> blow holes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Bob. Very good. Uh, oh, so interesting, gosh. right? Very. Like. As much as we think we know about the world we live in, there's some weird crap out there we've never heard about. Oh you know, gosh. it's really amazing. <laughs> Jay, are you having nightmares? What's going on over there? I wonder what you're thinking. <laughs> I mean, I shoot you with my nose tooth. Where are these? <laughs> where are these things, by the way? As I said, Indo-Pacific, like the Indo-Pacific coral reef. reefs. Yeah, that's just that one species. There's 500 species of cone snail. Just as as a group, they are the most. Uh, potent venom in the world. How have but we the, like never even heard of that? And like that snake. You have you guys have. ever just, heard of that species of snake? Yeah, the mulga. No. It's not like a I black haven't. mamba. It's not as popular, but the mulga snake. Yeah, yeah. But I've, I've yeah. at one point in time, I looked up all the venomous snakes in Australia. But why is the black mamba like more have more kind of cre- street cred? Because they got better aging. Yeah, yeah, right. So that's a cooler name, Weird. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it does have a cooler name. Although this reference says that the inland or western Taipan. Is the has the quote unquote deadliest venom, but again, I'm not sure how they measured that. That's what I was thinking about. That's why I got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, but you know, sure. I know I, I had to be careful with my wording there. You have to read so many different sources because you know they they're most of them mm. don't they're not precise in how they report it until you sort of tell me about it. Is, oh, yeah, deadliest. You know, yeah, most venomous or most yeah. d- dangerous or you know, gosh. So you yeah, find one a lot of it gave, has to do with living near people. Yeah, right. And also like how aggressive are they or versus mm-hmm. shy, you know. Yeah. All right, Evan, give us a quote. All right. I looked this one up. 
the other day, and I liked it because it matters. Here we go. Having equal rights does not mean having equal talents, equal abilities, or equal knowledge. It assuredly does not mean that everyone's opinion about anything is as good as anyone else's. And yet, this is now enshrined as the credo of a fair number of people, despite being obvious nonsense. Written by Tom Nichols from his book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Yep. Excellent book. Recommend it. There you go. And it does matter. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yep. And we talk about it regularly. Yep. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Steve, you like Fridays? Yeah. You mean the restaurant or the day of the week? The day of the week. Sure. The SGU has decided to do a free live stream open to the public every single Friday until things start to loosen up. Because one, we're all stuck at home for the most part, except Steve, who has to go to the hospital. And Evan, who has to go in as well. And Evan. Right. But you get the idea. But we we understand everybody, you know, most people are in lockdown somewhere. And and we thought, you know, why don't we just do this to give give people a, a, a great show to listen to? And every Friday, we will be doing a free live stream. It'll be streamed on YouTube and on our Facebook page. I will be posting all the details on our website and on our Facebook page. Uh, basically, the schedule that we've made is we could do 5 p.m. Eastern time. I think the UTC is 9, 9 p.m., right? Because that's four hours after us. Um, so U- UTC will be 9 p.m. We'll go for about an hour, hour and a half. We'll start by taking questions from our patrons. And if they run out of questions, we'll, t- we'll try to take questions from the public. Is it just me or is everybody else like not even aware of what day of the week it is right now? Today, it's killing me. I'm losing track of days. It's Wednesday. Like Today's day. Wednesday. I know it's Wednesday. Yeah. But do you guys have that problem? Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Are you kidding me? The weeks me? are just blending together. Um, number two, where can people watch this? So if you want to see this, you can go to youtube.com forward slash The Skeptic's Guide or facebook.com forward slash The Skeptic's Guide, and you'll see information there where, where to see the live stream. They make it very obvious when there's a live stream. Um, and you can also go to theskepticsguide.org for more information. But we'll be doing it every Friday, at least for the next four to six weeks. And uh, you know, please do join us at some point. And that's it. We're just gonna we're just gonna be talking about the virus and also talking about late the latest news else. items. Talk about yeah, we'll talk about more news, more stuff. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the virus all the time. No, but that'll be. But we'll but, give it well, the updates. We're gonna answer questions, and yeah. there's gonna be questions about it. Right. So, yeah. True. True. Yeah. And Carol, also, we can- we're all going to zoom in from our individual houses so you can like creep on where we live. That's Behind. right. Yeah. <laughs> little inside view. See who's got the, well, the last last time we, we last time we did it we used a digital background. I didn't. I went JK. on I went on natural. <laughs> yeah, Carol, my background was I was sitting in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> of course. Yeah, with yeah. no light on, with no light on your face, so it was like a shadow in the, That's fixed up. We're like that's what Jay's house actually looks like, yeah. isn't it? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, come on. Who yeah. wouldn't move into a house that it was the interior of the Falcon? I would do it in a I heartbeat. In a heartbeat. I would not at all under any <laughs> circumstances. Kara, when you want to watch TV, you sit in the cockpit. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> this is a horrible I would. Idea. I would prefer a house that's designed on the motif of uh, Bag End. Oh, oh sure. yeah, yes. yeah, that would be amazing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I really like my house the way it is. It, it's designed like a house. Boring. I mean, come on, Kara. You wouldn't want to live where Bilbo lived. No, 
I mean, he's got a warm <laughs> fire and he's got he's got a stocked cupboard. You know what I mean? Yeah, and normal house circular have windows and doors. <laughs> it's all right. It's not a wet my, hole. It's a, it's a, my house would be a combination of all of that. It would have a wing that would be one wing would be like a dungeon. The other one would be like a sci-fi <laughs> set. Of course, you the would have one, a dungeon. The other one would be a house house, Kara. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, okay. have a great week, and I'll see you all at the live stream. Yeah, well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. You got it, brother. You got it, man. This show went fast. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Everyone stay safe out there. Right. And until sure. next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible.